how powerful is God? How powerful is God? Most people that I know or that I've met seem to have a fascination with power. If you stop and think about it, it's particularly true of men, wouldn't you agree? Yes? Okay, great. How many of you have ever seen the uh, TV show Home Improvement? Have you ever seen that? All right, now, Tim Allen has capitalized and he has captured this fascination with power and uh, he does it with this phrase that he likes to call more power. You know, he's got every appliance you can think of and he adds more power to because there's just not enough power. You know, he's got the, the, the power tools and appliances and a hot rod and everything that you can imagine that somehow you can put, add power to it. This is what he does. And then he has that famous grunt of his, you know, it kind of does that. And, uh, and, and there's just this fascination with power. Well, I haven't been involved in athletics for as long as I can remember. There, there's always been a competition involving power. Now, some of you guys can attest to this, but when, when, when we were growing up, uh, we had things like the 300 Club, which would be guys that could bench press 300 and they'd get T-shirts and they'd be able to walk around with those. Or, you know, uh, when I was playing football, if you hit a guy and you knocked him backwards, you know, you got a, what was called a war eagle hit and you got to put it on the front of your helmet or a couple stars or whatever it is. I mean, if you really clocked a guy good, I mean, oh, there's nothing. I mean, that's like, Fred, is that not like the sweetest feeling in the world? I mean, that, that's just, I mean, it's the best, you know, and you just hear the, just the go out of a person and they're laying backwards and you just stand up and you just say, God bless you and, you know, and, and you you know, there, there's nothing like that. I mean, there's just, it's just an incredible feeling in sports. But, uh, you know, and there's arm wrestling. I mean, arm wrestling. And I, yeah, I, th- I, was, I was thinking of all the things I used to do as a kid or even, you know, just last week, you know. And, uh, uh, or, or finger bending. You know, you ever do that one, dads, with your, with your sons, finger bending? You know what that is? You know, it's like when they start feeling like, you know, they can whoop you or something. You do the old finger bending thing where you grab their hands, they grab your hands, and then you each squeeze to see who bends and who goes back and stuff. Never did that, huh? Anybody do that? Thank you very much. Okay, good. All right. And I, mean, and, as, and I remember my, I had an uncle that used to do that to me all the time, and he used to just kill me. But then as I got bigger, man, I remember my fingers, I got to the point where this, this, this finger here could touch that forearm. I mean, at the back of that arm, it was like, and I'd never give up. And then the, finally that day where you could just squeeze him and, and watch his face go, uh-oh, we're not playing this game anymore. You know? It's just that, that power. It's like... You know, who's the toughest in the strong? You know, it's just that's the way it is. This week, starting Monday, the NFL has what they call their annual combine. Now, what a combine is, it's an opportunity for potential college draft choices to go and show what their abilities are as far as their strength and agility and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, I can remember a couple years ago, we were watching the Combine. I mean, you know that you're a sick person when you watch the Combine on ESPN and they're showing guys running and lifting. And there was a guy that was there, he was like six foot five. He was over 300 pounds. He had a 48-inch vertical leap. Now, what that meant was he could stand still and jump 48 inches straight up in the air, which is four feet. Six foot five, 300. He could run the 40 and four six. And then they showed him bench pressing. He could bench press, and I think it was over 300 pounds, and he did it 30 times in a row within, like, I forget, like 45 or seconds or a minute. I mean, the guys who were watching with me were professional athletes, and they were sitting there going, whoa. We had a draft choice a few years ago. Um, you, uh, a guy that came out, and he was like, this guy was just one of those physical specimens. guy that you just look at, and you go, whoa. Just cut, marble, huge, six foot something, 310 pounds, rock solid muscle. Jackie Slater looked at him and said, well, this was probably about six years ago, said, well, looks like my career's over. You know, when the guy walked in the locker room, he just looked and said, that's it. 
And he said, just like, praise God every day, because when he went on the football field, the guy couldn't play football worth a lick. And he said, <laughs> hallelujah. You know, and it was like, that was great. You know, and I thought, you know, Ecclesiastes is great, because Solomon says, you know, the battle doesn't always go to the strongest, and the race doesn't always go to the swiftest, but there's this fascination with power. We all want to know who the toughest and the strongest is. I love the story that I heard about the lion. Some of you may have heard this. I think I've shared it before, but it fits in so well. I just have to share it. But the lion, the lion wanted to make sure that every other creature in the jungle knew that he was the strongest in all the jungle. And so he went about and he was running into the other animals and he, and he ran into the rhinoceros and he said, Mr. Rhino, who is the strongest, most fierce creature in all of the jungle? And the rhino looked at him, thought for a second, and said, well, you are Mr. Lion. And the lion roared with approval and he walked away. And he came across the gorilla. He said, Mr. Gorilla, who is the king of the forest, the strongest in all the jungle, the most powerful creature on the face of the earth? And the gorilla said, eh, you are Mr. Lion. The lion roared with approval and he walked away and he came up to the elephant and he said, Mr. Elephant, who is the baddest beast in all the jungle? The king of the jungle, the strongest of them all. And the elephant looked down at him, picked him up with his trunk, started smacking him off the ground three, four times, threw him up against a tree, went over, stomped on him a couple of times, picked him up, threw him out into the lake. The lion's battered and bruised. He comes crawling out and he looks up at the elephant and he says, Listen, you, just because you don't know the answer, that's no reason to get so upset. You know, we're like that. I mean, we're like the lion. I mean, I feel like the lion sometimes. You feel like the lion? It's like, you just feel like, you know, many of us are like that. We think we're the toughest, the most powerful. We're the king of the jungle. Who's the king of our jungle? (laughs) You know, guys. You know, who's the king of the jungle around here, you know? And we think that. And then one day, we meet Almighty God face to face. And it's like running into the elephant. And you go, "Uh uh-oh. You know what I mean? I mean, have you been watching all the stuff? That's, I mean, have you seen all the devastation that's going on in the world around us? I mean, we see the, the, the earthquake in Kobe, Japan, right? And, and I don't know about you, but you talk about observing something powerful. I mean, you see these shots and it doesn't even seem real. It's surreal. It's, it's like you see freeways just picked up and pushed over. You see cars just thrown or like little matchbox toy cars. You see whole buildings, you know, 50-story buildings that are just knocked over. And you see the, the incredible power that nature and an earthquake can exude. And you just go, oh, you're just in awe of that. Or you see all the floods and all the things that are going on, not only here locally in the last, few, in the last month, but in Europe now with all the flooding and what's going on and the destruction. And, and you see, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes and you see houses and, or yachts in a hurricane that's picked up and they're put 20 miles inland and just sat there, you know, just like it was lifted up and just sat down. I mean, and you, and you look at all this. And then one day it finally dawns on me, but you know what? God controls all that. Then you go, how powerful must God be? If God can control all of those things, how powerful must God be? That's a very appropriate question as we're dealing with the subject of getting to know God. Because then I think about this. How powerful is God? What can God really do? Can He heal you if you're sick? Can He put a failing marriage back together? Can He help you through tough financial situations? Can He lift you above your depression? Can He vindicate you if you're treated unjustly or wrongly accused? Can He stop famines and wars and earthquakes and volcanoes and tornadoes and and all the rest of these things? Can He cure you if you have cancer? 
you know, just can he stop the Rams from moving to St. Louis? <laughs> you know, can he get you a job if you need a job? Can he find you a husband or a wife if you're single and you're looking? I mean, what can God really do? Can he do what we would hope he'd be able to do? How powerful is God? Well, the Bible tells us a lot about the power of God. It's in Revelation 19.6, we read this. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. The New American Standard Bible says the Lord God Almighty reigns. Just as God has all knowledge, the Bible teaches that he also has all power. The saints in heaven throughout the book of Revelation, we read this in Revelation 4, 8, 11, 17, and 15, 3, they continually praise him and call him the Lord God Almighty. Even God himself, when he appeared to Abraham and announced his covenant with him, said he called himself the Almighty God. He was saying to Abraham, listen, if I make you a promise to make you a great nation, and if I make this promise to you, I want you to understand that I am God Almighty. That if I tell you I'm going to do something, I have the ability to do what I say. Wow. What great comfort that is for me to understand if God promises you and I something, He has the ability to deliver on His promises. There's nothing worse than somebody saying, well, I promise to do this, but they can't do it. We see that all the time. We wait, work for somebody who makes you a promise and they don't have the ability to deliver. I see players that, that play for coaches who say certain things and make certain promises, but it's not even within their ability or their parameters to be able to deliver on those promises. That's why everybody wants to cut out the middleman and go direct to the person who can back up the promises that they make. I want to hear that if I'm promised something, that you have the ability and it's within your authority to deliver the promise that you're going to make. What a wonderful thing to know is God promises us something. He has the ability to deliver. So as we go through this and address the questions, we're going to take a look at four facts that basically will help us to understand in order to address the question, how powerful is God? How powerful is God? Four things that we'll look at this morning. Okay? Number one, we learn this from the Bible, that God can do all things. God can do all things. Now, as I go through and I study the Bible, the Bible frequently tells me about God's ability. God can do all things. And oftentimes, there is no explanation that goes along with it. It's a statement of fact. It's like God is everywhere. We learned that a few weeks ago. God is everywhere present at the same time. And God doesn't spend a lot of time explaining how that's possible. He just says it's a fact. That's the way it is. Now, the evidence is there, and we look at it, and we have to either agree or disagree with it, but we have to examine the evidence. The Bible also tells us that God knows all things. The evidence is there. It doesn't tell us how God knows all things. It doesn't tell us how God is everywhere at the same time. It just simply tells us that God is everywhere present at the same time, and he knows all things and aware of all things. And then we read the Bible says that, you know what? God can do all things. That's exactly what it says. Consider what Job says in, in chapter 42 of verse, in verse 2. He said this. As he addressed the dilemma that he's found himself in and all the things that he had been put through and allowed to go through by God, he comes to this conclusion. I know that you, God, can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. What he's saying is, I know you can do all things and whatever your plan is, it's not going to be stopped. No matter how we try to stop it, no matter what we try to do to counteract it, no matter what, I know that you can do all things and that your plan will not be stopped. 
If you've, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to chapter, uh, chapter 1 of the book of Job in the Old Testament. And the reason that I want to bring it up is because here we're looking at Job's conclusion, but I think it's important to understand what led up to him concluding this particular matter. In Job chapter 1, God allows Job to go through a series of tests in his life. And it makes more sense if you understand what his conclusion is after you see what he went through. So God allows these things to take place. Now, if I'm Job, I put myself in this position and ask God, you know what, God? I mean, I went through all this stuff, but I just want to ask you a question. Could you have prevented this? Were you powerful enough to have stopped this if you had chosen to stop it? Now, in chapter 1, we read about God giving permission to Satan to, to attack, basically just attack Job in verse 12. It says, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only don't put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So now it happened on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. The Sabians attacked. They took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep, the servants consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, took them, slew them, the servants, and with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, all this stuff's going on. Another came to him and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. A great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house. It fell on all the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, as I'm reading through this, I begin to put myself in Joe's position, and it leads me to understand the question or the conclusion when he said, God, I know you can do all things, and no plan of yours will be stopped. But as I ask myself the question, God, could you have stopped these things if you wanted to? God, could you have stopped me from losing all my material possessions? Anybody who's gone through any difficult time financially or had that type of reversal in their life has asked themselves, God, could you have prevented this? Could you have stopped this? You go through it. Well, what about, you know, could you have stopped me from losing my servants and my sheep and my camels and my land and my business and all my financial portfolio and everything fell apart and I lost everything. But God, are you really powerful enough to stop this? Or are you limited? What can you do? My kids, they've been, they're sick. Or my children, they've died. I have a friend of mine who's a youth pastor at a church up in Glendora, a seven-year-old boy he's doing a funeral for this past Thursday. I talked to him Wednesday. He said, Chuck, it's such a difficult thing because here's a seven-year-old boy. He just died. He just died. No, I mean, he didn't get hit by a bus. He didn't get hit by a car. He didn't get hit by a basketball in the parking lot. He didn't, I mean, there was no reason for it from a human perspective. He just died. It's appointed for man to die once. The Bible says, then come judgment. I mean, it's not surprising to God. It was appointed. God knew that. But the problem is we don't know that. But as a grieving parent, you ask the question, God, could you have prevented this? And the answer is absolutely. I know, God, you can do all things. But Joe puts it in perspective when he says, but I know another thing about you. You've got a plan and you've got a purpose. And whatever your purpose is won't be denied. What can God do? It's interesting, as uh, the disciples asked Jesus, and Jesus also concurs with the fact that God can do anything, is that when they were coming to him, they were asking him about, can a rich man ever get to heaven? Now stop and think about this in the context of what they're talking about. See, because if you have material wealth here on earth, you are rarely denied access to anything that you want. Isn't that true? If you've got money, 
you have access to things that others who do not have money are denied access to. Give me an example. We were out house hunting with some friends yesterday, just driving to drive around, right? Now, now we went to this particular place to look at a house. Now, there's no way in the world that we could ever buy a house that was in a particular neighborhood, but we thought it'd be kind of neat to look at these houses and see what's going on, be in the construction industry and just like to know what's happening. But so, Linda and I drive up there one day with our two kids in our van. Now, it's not an old, ratty, beat up, raggedy van, you know, and we didn't look all ratty, beat up, and raggedy looking people. But we pulled up to the gate and said, we'd like to go in and look at the houses. And the guy looked at us and he laughed. <laughs> and what he was saying was, access denied. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Have you ever been there? It's like, oh, wait, what's that? You know? And that's, that's one time in life you wish you had the money to buy something in a suitcase in the back and show them and just say, we changed our mind. I mean, that's, like, that's the only time you know, that you wish that you did that, right? But it was like, access denied. Well, see, the disciples came to Jesus and said, well, you know what? If you're saying it's impossible for a rich man to get to heaven or buy himself into the favor of God, then who can get into heaven? Because rich people can get anything they want. And you're saying that riches don't impress God. That only faith and trust in God's plan and in Jesus are the only way you're going to get into heaven. And this is what Jesus said. He looked at him and said this, Matthew 19, 26. With man, this is impossible. But you know what? With God, all things are possible. Where we cannot buy our way into heaven, and it's impossible, Jesus said, but you know what? But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. What can God do? He can do all things. God can do all things. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, I've got a problem, and so do you, in that trying to understand why he doesn't do all things. Why didn't, he do, why didn't he do what we want him to do? That's my problem. That's what I wrestle with. If you can do all things, why don't you do what I want you to do, God? I mean, I don't get it. I don't understand. Let me ask you a question. How many people do you think died while Jesus walked the face of the earth? You think any people died while he was on the face of the earth? My bet is that some people died. I mean, I don't know how many people died. I don't have the records to the, you know, the coroner's reports for that particular period of time. I don't know how many people died, but I'm willing to bet that, you know what, people died. Now, as I was reading through the Bible, I began to realize, you know what, Jesus only raised a few of them from the dead, right? So he raised Jairus' daughter. We know he raised Lazarus. And then in Matthew 27, 52, I like this, it says, And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised after the crucifixion a sign or power of God, he raised people from the dead to attest to the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be. It was an, a testimony to what the claims of Christ were. But you know what? I read this again and it says, and many bodies of the saints who have fallen asleep were raised. It doesn't say that everybody said many. Now I got a question for you. Could God have raised all of them? But he only chose to raise some of them. How many people do you think were lame and had physical ailments or, or, or some type of affirmity when Jesus walked the face of the earth? Do you think they were the only people that were the ones that he healed? How many people do you think were hungry? He only fed the multitudes on two occasions. He didn't feed everybody all the time. So you've you got to start asking yourself some questions here. Did he raise everybody that died? No. Could he have? Yes. Did he feed everybody? No. Could he have? Yes. Did he heal everybody? No. Could he have? Yes. Then why didn't he? 
It's a good question. Because he does what he wants to do. When Ryan was little, and we had one of our first shepherd group Bible, uh, barbecue type things. And we were running around the backyard, and at the time, they were playing, um, I forget what it's called. It was probably some power game. But anyway, they had, oh, I know what it was. It was where you put kids on your shoulders and you run around the yard. What's that called, chicken or something? Or Yeah, whatever it is. Uh, it really works a lot better in a swimming pool, and I'll tell you why in a second. So... <laughs> They're running around the backyard. They had these, they, they, the kids were running around. They had them on their shoulders, and they were playing that game, and they were trying to knock the other one off of the other person. That's the way the game's played. So you run around the yard, and you grab the person that's on the shoulders of another person, and if you can throw them both to the ground, you win, and obviously they must lose. Well, Ryan was on a losing team, and he got thrown off onto the sidewalk. And, um, and it's not the place you want to land when you're playing that game. That's why I think a swimming pool is a better place to play it. But anyway, we didn't have a pool, so it was kind of the poor man's version of this particular game. <laughs> So he got knocked off and he hit his head on the corner of the sidewalk where it had brick runners that were on the sidewalk and the grass level wasn't quite where it should have been as I found out and I was uh, so properly told by those who were there um, that you know if the grass would have been up there wouldn't have been that edge there that he caught his head on, right? So anyway, he hits his head, splits it open and, uh, and then we make a trip to the hospital where he's getting stitches in, right? And uh, as only uh, a little boy could put it, he said, Dad, could God make my owie go away? You say, absolutely. But you know what? He may not want to. Because he may want you to learn a lesson from your owie so that you'll understand why it happened and you won't do the same thing again. Right? Now see, does that, that makes sense for kids, doesn't it? Doesn't it also make sense for adults? Can God do all things? Absolutely. But you know what? Sometimes he's not going to let your owie go away. And the reason is because he wants to let you know how you got into the mess you're in so that you will learn from it and you won't repeat the same wrong behavior that led up to that particular point. See, it makes sense for kids, but it doesn't make sense for adults because we want God to wave a wand and say, please make everything go away and make everything better. But sometimes he's just not going to do that. Sometimes we contribute to our owies. Other times, like Job, we don't contribute to our owies but God allows our owies to happen anyway so that his purposes will be fulfilled. I've got a guy that, that owes us some money through our business and, uh, and, 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 it's, and it's an owie. You know, he's in a situation where he's caused owies for himself and for other people. And you ask the question, okay, you know, why? I mean, we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything wrong. We did everything right and this guy still hasn't paid us. What's going on? And it was, it's been a great opportunity to share with him because he's a believer, he goes to another church, and he chose to do something that was wrong, and he's paying the price for it. And he say, well, you know what? And it's like, why doesn't God just make all this go away? You know why? Because maybe he's trying to teach you something about financial principles, about biblical principles, about that God's not mocked and, and we reap what we sow. Maybe he's trying to teach you that you, know, you need to take a good hard look at your integrity and your character and what you say you believe and how it's lived out on a daily basis. You know, I don't know why God won't make it go away because I'm praying that he makes it go away too because we're suffering because of what you did and it'd be nice. If nothing else, I hope he makes our owie portion go away while he keeps dealing with your owie portion. You know? and, and you just get to the point where it's like, but God doesn't do things like that because no purpose of his will be denied. Whatever his plan or reason is, that's just the way that it is, and that's God. He's not going to wave a wand just because we want him to. God does what he does because he's God. And he's got a purpose and a plan behind everything that he does. 
But I know this, the Bible clearly teaches that God can do all things. It's a matter of what does he choose to do? Number two, and it kind of goes along with it because you ask yourself the question, you know what, are there things though that are too difficult even for God? You ever get to that point in life? It's like this one is so big and so messed up that even God couldn't bail me out of this one. This is a nightmare. This is unbelievable. How am I going to get out of this? Is it even too big for God? Do you ever think that a situation that you may find yourself in is just that impossible? Well, the good news is, is that nothing is too difficult for God to do. I'll give you an illustration. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. Great illustration of a couple who felt that, you know what, what they were going through in life was even too tough for God. Genesis 18, verses 10 through 15 We read this. Abraham and Sarah are at a point where God had promised them that God would make Abraham a great nation. The problem with it was Abraham understood that he was missing the one requirement for him to be the father of a great nation. And that was that. He didn't have any kids. Well, gee, God, you made a promise. I'm going to be a great nation. I want oversight here. I don't have any kids. What are you going to do about that? And this goes back to what God promised. Now, if I told you something, I'm also powerful enough to follow through with it. Genesis chapter 18, starting with verse 10. It says, And he said, Surely I will return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind. Okay, Abraham's having a conversation with the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says, God says, Hey, listen, a year from now, you're going to have a son. Sarah's listening outside the tent. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, they were advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Now Sarah was outside the tent, listening to all this, and guess what? She laughed. She said, and what's interesting, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I also have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Now she may have been laughing not only at her condition, but what she recognized about Abraham's condition. Now, Abraham was old, too. So both of them had a problem. Now, God is funny. I mean, he got a great sense of humor. I mean, let's face it. And he's just like, yeah, this is going to be a miracle if it's going to happen at all. Because this just isn't going to happen. But the reality of it was, the Lord said to Abraham, well, wait a minute. Why is Sarah laughing? Why is she saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Is there anything too difficult for God to do? At the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Well, Sarah denied or lied that she even laughed about it because she was afraid, but God said, no, I know that you laughed. Isn't this interesting? Abraham is called a friend of God throughout the Bible. God promised that he'd make Abraham a great nation, Abraham and Sarah, despite their close relationship with God, they too believed that God couldn't even pull this one off. This one's too tough for God. Have you ever been in that situation? See, just because we know God doesn't mean we really know God. Abraham knew him, but he didn't know everything there was to know about him, and he was still teaching. God was still revealing himself to Abraham. 
Well, the story ends up exactly as God says. A year from then, they had a child. And I'm sure that at least for that period of time, they never doubted that God could do what he said to do. We'll see next time that even though God reveals himself and we see that nothing is too difficult for God, there are times where immediately afterwards we say, okay, wait a minute. We'll talk about that in a second. Jeremiah's prayer in 32.17 says this, O sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing's too hard for God. He can do anything that he wants to do, that he chooses to do, and that nothing is too difficult for God to do. There was a book that came out, not, well, it was a while ago, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. As he reads through the book, and, he, and as we read through the book, and he addresses the issue, you know, why do things happen? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he stop evil from happening in the world? If God is all-powerful, why did my child get killed in a car accident? If God is all-powerful, why did I get cancer? If God is all-powerful, why did my business fail? If God is all-powerful, why did my marriage fail? If God is all-powerful and he can do all things, why do these things happen? See, in Rabbi Kushner, as he goes through this, he has to somehow or another deal with it, and so he comes to the conclusion that there's only two choices. Either God is limited or God doesn't care. Because if God cared, he'd do something if he had the power within his means to do it. So his conclusion, which is wrong, and we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks, is that God must not care. But we'll deal with that when we address the question, does God care? Because the Bible teaches that he does. Well, if God cares and he's all-powerful, then I don't understand why he does what he does. You following this? It's important because we all go through it in life. If you can do all things and you care about me, then why don't you do what I want you to do? He says, because I'm God and I do what I know with all my knowledge, because he's all-knowing, what I know, since I know the beginning and the middle and the end, I know the outcome, it's, it, it, it enables me to make the right decision in every circumstance, under every situation, because I always know how it's going to turn out. So what you don't know is why I'm doing what I'm doing, but what you've got to do is trust me and know that I can do all things if I chose to, and that nothing's too difficult for me. And it gives you comfort when you're going through difficult times like Job to know that God could bail me out if he chooses, but he's choosing not to for his purposes so they won't be thwarted, so that we'll learn and grow through all of it and that God will be glorified and blessed from it. And you can then relax to a certain degree as you learn more about the person of God. There's great comfort and assurance in that for me when I go through difficult times, knowing nothing's too difficult for God, and he can do all things. But the problem that I have and I have to address and deal with is the same one that we all do, and that is that God will only do what's consistent with his nature, with his character, and with his purposes. Can God do all things? Yes. Will he always do all things? No. Why? Because he is consistent as far as his character is concerned. He will not do things that are inconsistent with his character. The best example of that is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, when Satan comes to tempt him in the wilderness. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, read it as you have some time. But what you'll see is that Jesus was tempted by the devil. The devil came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think it would be too hard for God to turn stones into bread? No. Then why didn't he do it? Because he answered clearly. He says, because it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
See, and the devil continually tempted him and challenged his power. Can't you do this? And Jesus said, yes, I could do it if I wanted to do it, but the reality of it is I don't want to do it. It's like people say, can God make a rock that he can't move? Well, it's a stupid question because God doesn't play silly, stupid games like that because it's not consistent with his character. He's not some, you know, foolhardy person who just thinks of stupid things like we do to do. God is consistent with his character and with his nature and his purposes. And he went through and explained that as he goes through it. What are some of the things that God will not do? Give you three of them real quick. One is God cannot lie. He cannot lie. If he promises us something, he'll follow through with it. In Titus 1, 1 through 3, we read this. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgments of the truth, which is according to godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. You see what he's saying? That God, if he promises you and I eternal life or life with God for all of eternity by putting our faith and trust in Christ, if he says, if you trust in the Lord, you will not be disappointed. If you receive Christ, you become a child of God. If God says you do that, he says, then I'm not lying to you that you are a child of mine for all of eternity. You follow that? It's not based on whether you're baptized or whether you give money or whether you do this or that. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not works. So what he's saying is, Chuck, if I promise you eternal life or that you'll be with me forever, then understand this. I am powerful enough to deliver on that promise, and it's consistent with my character because I'm not lying to you. I'm not fibbing you. I'm not teasing. I'm not just kidding. I promised it, and it's yours. What a great comfort. But you know what? He also cannot be tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anybody with evil. In James 1.13, says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. The devil doesn't make us do it. And God doesn't make us do it. Whatever we choose to do that's wrong before God, we choose to do it. It's called taking responsibility for our actions. I made a mistake. I chose to do it. It was wrong before God, and I'm not blaming God. The nature of man from the beginning of time, if you remember in Adam and Eve, was always to blame God for everything wrong that we do in our life. Yeah, we ate of the tree, but God, you made the tree. You made the fruit. You gave me the woman. It's got to be your fault, because the only other option there is is I'd have to take personal responsibility. Isn't that the culture we live in today? It can't be my fault. It's got to be my parents' fault, my grandparents' fault. It's got to be society's fault. It's got to be the drugs or the booze or something that made me do it. It's got, I mean, there's got to be a reason because otherwise I'd have to take responsibility. Oh my gosh, what would society become if we all took responsibility for our actions? See, God isn't as concerned with what we do wrong because he has forgiven us in Christ. What he's concerned about is that we know the difference between right or wrong. That when we're wrong, we ask for forgiveness and confess our sins, and we learn from our mistakes, and with God's help, we don't repeat the same foolishness. God is a God of great love and compassion and mercy, and we need to understand that. All God wants to hear is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. God help me now with the consequences that I have to deal with. See, God will do what's consistent with his nature, character, and purpose. And the last thing is that God won't deny himself. 
And that's simply this, in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we're faithless, God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. Meaning if God says something, then he means it. He's consistent. The last thing in number four that we'll talk about is simply this. And I love this because sometimes I think this. I don't know if you think this way, but sometimes I think, okay, God can do all things. Nothing's too difficult for God. I understand he's got to be consistent with who he is, but I just wonder sometimes, does he ever get tired? I mean, I get tired. God's got to get tired. You're tired sitting here listening to me. I mean, see, you know, we all wear it out, and, and, but God is tired. You know, does God get tired? See, sometimes I think, you know what? Okay, God has burned up a lot of energy on your problems, and I would wish that you'd just stop having those problems so God have a little bit of energy to share with us. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Do you ever? It's like we think that way sometimes. It's like you know, going to a parent who only has so much money, and you got other kids in your family who are always hitting them up and taking everything that they got. And you're thinking, hey, you know what? You're giving it all away to them. Now we don't really need any, but just in case we ever get in the jam, it'd be nice if you had some left. So what are you doing? See, sometimes you think that's the way God is. He only has so much resource. He only has so much power. He has only so much energy. And he's burning it up on everybody else. And so it's time like, oh, I need some of that. Well, the good news is God never gets tired. Now, I don't know about you, but I get tired. And some of you are hoping that I'm tired of talking right now. Not yet, but in a minute. But you get tired. I know great athletes, no matter how great an athlete they are, they get tired. You can see it in a weight room. You can see it in a workout. You can see people running around a track. Do you ever watch a track meet? You see somebody who's running the mile. They go around. They're just busting it, man. Quarter mile, they're setting a record pace. Half a mile, setting a record pace. Three quarters of a mile, setting a record pace. And then they get what's called dead legs. If you ever had dead legs, it's like training for a few marathons. You get these legs. It's like, it's like they don't listen to you anymore. They're there. You can see them, but they're not going anywhere. And you're like going... And you're trying to, and you're grabbing them and you're just dragging them with you and they're just like, they're out of gas. And that just happens. You're done. You're finished. You're burned out. But God isn't like that. And that's good to know. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31, where we read this. Don't you, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary or tired. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk, and they will not faint. Man, that's good stuff. You can get excited about that. I'm glad to know God's never too tired to hear me whenever I need Him. Help! And He's there. He can do all things. And because He can do all things, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He can do all things and nothing's too difficult for Him. Man, that's a great promise. But He's going to do that which is consistent with His character and His purpose and His plan. Not just because we want Him to. It's called submission to the will of God. Not my will be done, Lord, but yours be done. And he doesn't sleep or slumber. Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither, neither sleep nor will he ever slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. 
He shall preserve under he shall persevere or preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Our God never gets tired by using his power. I love it. A few years ago we had some, we had a guy that he was you know, he was a rookie guy, kind of a rookie in this particular area of life, but a couple of us were working out at a club. And a particular guy that was there for the first time never lifted weights in his life. I mean, he probably did, but he didn't do it on a regular basis. So we like to do this little thing, and you may want to try this sometime on your own. We like to do this little thing with these rookies. Say, hey, uh, have you working out? So we're lifting some weights. And they weren't heavy weights. That was the whole purpose, because we wanted him to believe that he could do what he thought he could do. And so they were just light weights, but we did a lot of reps. A lot of reps. And he would just burn them up. And he thought, man, I'm keeping up with you guys. This is great. You know, I'm in great shape. And we just did that, you know, for about an hour, hour and a half. Just worked them out real good. And then the next day, I couldn't wait. So I heard from him. And I said, hey, how's it going? He said, oh, it went great. So you feeling good after the workout? Oh, man, I feel great. I said, that's great. And he was kind of keeping it low key. Then we had lunch, or I figured lunch or dinner with his wife. And the first thing she said was, what did you do to him yesterday? I said, what? He goes, she said, he got up. I had to help him out a bit. <laughs> then he got in the shower and he couldn't wash his hair because he couldn't lift his arms higher than right hair. All right? I had, to, I had to stick my hands in and wash his hair for him. Then, if that wasn't bad enough, he couldn't brush his teeth because he was like, and the toothbrush wasn't long enough. He couldn't brush his teeth. And the whole time she's saying this, he just like turned a beet red. Because he had just told me that everything was great. And I knew that it wasn't because the same thing happened to me. And, and it was hilarious. And then it was, what a, it was just like a perfect illustration of how limited we are and how unlimited God is. Isn't that great? Next week we'll see evidence of it. It's one thing to, to, to learn that, you know what, God can do all things. Nothing's too hard for God. God's going to be consistent. And he's never exhausted by his power. And all those things are good because they really help us with the definition. But what evidence do we have that God can really do what we learned today? You've got to come back next week. But for now, we'll close in prayer. Father, we're just thankful for your word. We're just thankful that you help us to understand who you are. God, we just thank you for your power. We're thankful that nothing is too difficult for you. And if nothing else, may we leave here today understanding that, you know what, you've got a purpose and a plan, and that we're included in that plan. There's, any, there's nothing going on in our lives that you don't know about and that you haven't ordained. Sometimes it's because of our own mistakes, and God, we just pray that we'd know that we were wrong and that we'd confess our sin. Other times it's because you allow it to happen for your purposes and for your glory, and may we just relax and just be grateful that you include us to be counted in your plans. God, help us to understand that you're not a limited God, that you, only, that you don't have just so much power and then you've got to recharge, but that you have unlimited power and you never get tired by the exercise of it, that you never sleep, that you never slumber, that you're never unaware of what's going on in each one of our lives. And God, we're just grateful and we just love you and praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.